Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, it's been a few weeks. How have you been doing? Uh, I am recharged. So after the trade deadline, um, went on a little bit of vacation with my family uh, to Orlando, Florida. Caught a couple of minor league baseball games with my 12-year-old son, by the way. That was really good. Um, we saw the Tigers uh, low A team play the Blue Jays low A team. And then a couple of nights later, saw the Tigers low A team again play the Reds low A team in Florida. So that was, was fun. I felt like a scout. Um and a few other fun things and cleared my head and came back, got caught up on some other things with the site. And uh, summer's almost over. Find myself watching some baseball playoff-ish implication games. Go Orioles. I like rooting for underdogs. Uh, so that's where I'm at. How about you? Nice. Yeah, glad to hear it. I'm uh, I'm glad the summer is winding down solely because you know every every once in a while now we're getting a day where it doesn't hit 100 degrees it's pretty special you know (laughs) i I can actually go outside and and enjoy myself sometimes i didn't know that was allowed um but yeah uh, everything's going pretty well here I, i also enjoyed a little bit of time away from from the site and just enjoying baseball for what it is and uh I am ready to get back into it to to buckle up for the playoff races and for the off season ahead. So uh, we have a pretty fun episode planned. Uh, obviously, there's no trades to talk about right now, but plenty of transactions, contract stuff, um, and, and also some front office movement. So uh, there's a lot to get into. Are, are you good to get started? Yeah, I just want to like give a plug to minor league baseball in general. We had a really good time, my son and I, watching these Florida league games. So uh, if you get a chance to go out there, I highly recommend it. It's a good time. Yeah, I'll second that. Uh, There's probably a joke there somewhere about uh, the low A Tigers being just as as competitive or fun to watch as the big league Tigers. But even aside from that, (laughs) uh, minor league baseball, always fun. I'm out here in Arizona, so... I can't wait for the fall league. That's always a blast. Oh, right. Uh, highly recommend any chance you get to either come out here or just go to your local minor league team. It's uh, it's something different and it's something it's a lot more intimate, and especially for for kids who want to get autographs or catch a foul ball, whatever. Great experience. Both of those things happen with my kid on uh, two consecutive nights. And shout out to Tigers prospects Roberto Campos and a new draftee Pey- Peyton Graham, who are both super nice guys. Signed his ball. Got others to sign his ball, so uh, good on you guys. I like those guys. Awesome, and I think I think Campos is a decent name to watch. So he is, <laughs> and so be. is Peyton Graham. Yeah, yeah, might be worth a couple bucks someday. <laughs> All right, uh, let's let's jump into things. Uh, actually, before we go into transactions, do you want to cover uh, the latest round of updates? Sure. Okay, so um, just to just to kind of summarize what what this update was it's not uh it's unlike our previous updates we've never i don't think we've ever done one quite like this one before uh rather than update it and give you the exact values as they would be today uh we we figured that that's not that doesn't make the most sense because trades can't happen today so who cares what i don't know who cares what wilson Contreras is worth today on august 27th when nobody can trade for him today so instead we looked ahead to the off season and the way we did that was by using the current stats and kind of projecting them out as if they were 
to uh, to continue throughout the end of the 2022 season. And so that means that they're not maybe not quite as I don't want to say not as accurate, but they're they're, they're not quite as sticky. The, it, a lot of the numbers on the site right now aren't going to look that way once we actually get to early October, early November. But it does provide kind of a ballpark estimate of where these guys' values are going to be uh, once we hit the offseason. So a guy like Wilson Contreras, he's at a zero because he's a pending free agent. Uh, other players, they've had the rest of their 2022s lopped off, and it and it essentially they're projected uh, going forward as if they continue 2022 at their current pace and went into the offseason, and this is who they are. So right. uh, additionally, the uh, prospects from the draft have been added, correct? Yeah, all of that is correct. So we noticed in previous years that, you know, after the deadline passed, you know, traffic dies down a little bit, but the, the, a lot of folks still come and they start thinking about offseason already. And I know it's early, but, you know, we notice that, well, it's an offseason trade. It's an offseason trade, but they're using numbers as if they were current today. And so we thought, okay, well, let's just, let's provide some help for that, you know, because to your point, you know, no one can really trade. And we're trying to mimic the real world, right? So so it, it seems to make more sense to kind of project ahead a little bit. And sometimes with the um, player projection, sometimes particularly with the what we call post prospects, those guys who no longer are prospects but not quite established yet, they can jump a little bit because our model has them sort of, you know, on a time scale. And the time scale suddenly shifts to the end of the year. And so you might find a little wonkiness there. Uh, but like Josh said, it's a ballpark estimate. We're going to do another, you know, update with ballpark estimates uh, in a week or two, at about the eighty-five percent mark of the season, and then when the season's over, um, we'll adjust a couple of times uh, just to make sure our numbers are correct and make sure all the source sources are correct and calibrated and so forth. So uh, that's on the major league side. On the minor league side, <clears throat> you know, this kind of downtime also gave us a chance to, you know, um, add to each prospect list the new draftees that were at least considered prospects by some of the major prospect outlets. So, um, you know, the, typically the first round draft choices, the second round draft choices, and maybe a couple of sleepers who kind of sneak in there. So those have been added to all the team lists as well. So you can kind of get a feel for what their values are. Now they can't be traded by rule until after the world series, but you know, that's kind of what we're going for anyway. So we figured why not put them in. And so those updates are complete and up to date. And finally, you know, this time of year also we see some call-ups and some guys getting some real action. Brett Beatty from the, from the Mets, for example, um, will be added into kind of that post-prospect ter territory shortly soon. And other, other times some rebuilding teams will add prospects. Shea Langoliers just came up for the A's. So you'll start to see guys, uh, their value change a little bit as they switch from minors mode to majors mode as well. So all that's been kind of happening behind the scenes. I do want to further clarify on your note about the draft pick trading. Uh, I've seen some confusion about that, but they did in fact close the Trey Turner loophole. Uh, there, there was, I believe it was that you had to wait a full year previously. I might be wrong on that specific of it. Uh, I believe you had to wait a full year from when a guy was drafted. So basically until the next draft to trade him. Uh, but teams are working around that by using the player to be named later system and so trey turner right after he was drafted essentially was traded as a player to be named later to uh the nationals in that uh steven souza jr will myers that like three team trade um but uh, that loophole has been closed and instead as you said you, you just have to wait until after the world series to trade these guys so just wanted to be 
totally clear on that one. Thank you for that. Yeah, and as a uh, as a unrelated sidebar, I love the phrase ballpark estimate. I, there's a lot of words, a lot of baseball words that work their way into <laughs> into our nomenclature as as just regular society, non-baseball society, but ballpark estimates one of my favorites it's it's a it's a good term and I, I like that i can use it and other people know what it means even if they're not baseball people <laughs> you know i used to work at a big global company that had a lot of foreign people interacting and i had a guy visiting from france and i found myself using baseball terms like oh that's a home run and he's like what is a home run <laughs> you know so not everybody gets it <laughs> oh I, great great accent too <laughs> yeah i try all right. Uh, anything else on the updates, or do you want to get into to some of these transactions? Yeah, let's get into it. Sweet. So we're starting with a really fun one. Uh, I am still comprehending this this deal, but the Mariners signed Julio Rodriguez to one of the most interesting extensions we've ever seen, one of the most significant, and I, I think it could uh, it could pave the way for similar deals down the road, kind of a kind of a trendsetter maybe. Uh, but it's it's this weird, complicated deal that could be as long as like four or not not forty years. Sorry, <laughs> it could take him through age forty. It could be as long as twenty years. Um, there there's so many different permutations to this contract that it's hard to really it's hard to tell you exactly what the contract is. But it's a I believe twelve year, uh, two hundred and ten million dollar baseline guarantee. Um, and that starts this season, and there's a signing bonus this season as well. It can max out at 470 million over those 20 years. And there's there's kind of the structure here where there's a club option and a player option, and it depends on uh, how well Julio Rodriguez does in MVP voting. And there's all these different kind of thresholds of how much Seattle's club option. Uh, for the it's an eight-year club option after the 12 years and there's these different thresholds for how lucrative that eight-year extension would be that eight-year club option would be based on his MVP finishing during that time span Um, and he does have a five-year 90 million dollar player option as kind of a backup if the Mariners don't exercise that club option uh, but that one can increase based on silver slugger voting and all-star appearances uh, up to 125.5 million. So there's there's a lot going on here. It's somewhat reminiscent, uh, not not quite to the same extent, but it's somewhat similar to the Byron Buxton extension, where that one is kind of a baseline and it'll it can go up based on how Buxton performs and whether he stays healthy, basically. I believe that one is also based on MVP voting. Uh, every year there's bonuses he can get, pretty pretty lucrative bonuses. Uh, but this one is just its own thing entirely, and uh, it's it's very fun. Yeah. Very complicated, but very fun. And what, a, what an exciting thing for the Mariners. What an exciting thing for Julio Rodriguez. He's a fantastic player we can already tell that for sure by age 21 um so just wow still trying to wrap my head around it um what what are your thoughts here and and what did this do to julio's value so to take the latter question first <clears throat> it vaulted him into the top slot as uh the the player with the highest trade value now in our model he's over 200 he's a 212 uh, so he passed guys like Tatis and Franco and Acuna, who were in the sort of 170-ish range. 
Um, so uh, because he's got because he's only 21 and it's such a long time frame potentially, uh, so many years of control all the way through his mid to late 20s and his prime years and into his 30s, there's a lot of surplus value there that adds up. And so the way I kind of figured out, you know, you just sort of model out like, you know, what the value of those years might be, like, you know, in a, in a sort of base case scenario. And then, you know, if there's surplus value, then, you know, we assume the Mariners would exercise that option to get more surplus value in addition to the field value as well from Julio. So that's kind of the way it worked out. Um, it does start to go negative towards the back end of that after having exercised that. Uh, but nonetheless, they more than make up for it with all the surplus value up front. So now a lot of people think, well, why would a young player leave money on the table? Um, this comes up every time one of these questions, these contracts happen. And so they're always sort of like balancing kind of like, you know, the, you know, um, security of getting a lot of money versus the upside of, well, I could have made more money if I had just waited for free agency. Um, and teams know this. And this is why these sort of uh, contracts with these younger players are getting more popular because um, they can really make a difference in a young player's life. So if you try to extend them like this when they're like a year before free agency, it's not going to happen. Uh, because they're just at that point waiting for free agency and the big ticket. But when they're 21 and in their rookie year, it can happen because you make a difference. One thing that occurred to me that doesn't get factored in so much is, you know, when you're, you know, Julio Rodriguez, for example, was making league minimum, right? 700K. And he figured to make league minimum for the next, you know, two years after that and then go into ARP. So there's no big chunk of value, uh, money. He's getting a $15 million signing bonus, and he's getting presumably about averaging $15 million a year from here point on. He could sock that away and invest that. If you figure out the time of money, that money adds up to even more such that his total sort of value when you sort of compute that will be a lot closer to what he would have gotten if he had just waited for free agency, if you follow my drift. So... You know, you can invest the $90 million he'll get guaranteed up front, and that will, like, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying here, but let's say that goes up to, like, $120 million. So that's an extra $30 million he would have, you know, that he didn't have to wait for. That sort of that com compounded, you know, in his, in his bank account. So um, that can make a difference to a player as well and sort of close the gap between, you know, this sort of payday versus what he would have gotten free agency. In addition to... You know, the, the sense of security. I mean, it wasn't lost on me that uh, his teammate, Kyle Lewis, was rookie of the year two years ago and now, you know, has had two knee surgeries and can barely play. And so I'm sure Julio looks at him and thinks, okay, well, I better get my money now. You know, there's a lot of stories like that as well. So I think the, the difference between what he would have made as a free agency and what he makes in this is minimal enough that it made perfect sense for him. And to boot, he's still got the upside of it's flexible on the back end. So if he plays more, he gets more. If he plays better, he gets more. So I can't see it being a lose for either side. It's a total win for Julio. It's a total win for the Mariners who have control of the star for, you know, uh, more than a dozen years probably. So it's it's an excellent deal all around. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as far as that kind of uh, your, your point, point about getting the money right now and you can invest it and all of that obviously we're not expecting this 21 year old who just signed this lucrative deal to immediately go stick it all into a into a fund or anything 
and we're not like banking on that or anything in, in our kind of evaluation of the deal, but there also is just some value to getting that money right now. Uh, we, even, even risk aside, you know, he, like you said, league minimum this year, 700,000. And it's, it's not like, you know, he's, he's scraping by on that 700,000 or anything, but there is something very attractive to, Hey, rather than wait until, my second, third year of arbitration to really be making the big bucks, I can start living in luxury right now. There's something I'm sure very attractive about that to a 21 year old who's just getting started that he can go buy his big house today. He doesn't yeah. have to wait three or four years. Yeah, I mean, you know, they'll buy it, he'll buy the big house and maybe one for his mom and he'll buy a fancy car and he'll have a couple of parties. After a while, you sort of settle in. Okay, it's my new lifestyle, and the money keeps coming in. Like, how rich can you be, right? There's also that, right? Like, at a certain point, you got enough, and then there's more, and there's more. You know, so um, I'm sure he'll be fine. Exactly, and you also can't look at the 212 million that we have him valued at now. You can't really look at that as he's leaving 212 million on the table, because previously we had him valued at 121 million. And so that's, you know, he signs no extension. He's just going through the league minimum and then arbitration process. That's what we have as kind of the league rules are forcing him to leave on the table, if that makes sense. So that's kind of more of the baseline. So if you yeah. want to argue they left anything on the table, it's more like 90 million. And it's, it's you know, there's, there's uh, it's all the risk. It's all the immediacy of, of receiving that money. It's all the factors that we've discussed and deciding if that's worth 90 million over over those years or, or how, however you want to look at that specifically. But I uh, just want to point out that the baseline is, yeah. is different. Yeah. That's a good point. And you know, that's another reason why we're starting to see this um, type of deal. Like Michael Harris signed an extension recently. Um, there's a couple others as well that we'll mention probably. Um, but you start to see it. It's become more common. Alex Anthopoulos of the Braves has kind of mastered the art of this. He signed Aston Riley as well. Who knows, maybe he'll sign Vaughn Grissom to an extension now that he's playing well. But, you know, a lot of teams are sort of taking this and saying, okay, who are my stars that I can build around? Let's lock them in. Let's get a similar sort of win-now deal that's not all that different from what they would get paid in free agency, but it kind of splits the difference and enough so that everybody's happy. Yeah, and one more point I want to make kind of from a from a general perspective is I know sometimes we get feedback of, oh, how can this 21-year-old who's hasn't even played a full season yet, and he's looking at his numbers right now, he's got a 27% strikeout rate and blah, blah, blah. He's not proven, never played in AAA. How can this guy be so much more valuable than just looking at the list, Jose Ramirez or... or uh Corbin Burns, you know, these more proven guys. Uh but this kind of uh this this recent trend of Julio Rodriguez getting the big deal, Wander Franco to a lesser extent as you mentioned uh Michael Harris. Uh, those are three teams that aren't typically, you know, that's not it's not the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Phillies and and these other big budget powerhouses that are locking up their superstars. This is the Seattle Mariners and the Tampa Bay Rays. <laughs> and the Braves have been spending uh, pretty reasonably lately. But uh, I think it tells you something. We're, we're always trying to learn what we can from teams, right? And this isn't to say that teams are infallible. They'll still make their mistakes, but they've gotten a lot smarter. We don't see quite as many of the Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera and, and those kinds of financial commitments. 
so teams are getting smarter with how they spend their money. So it kind of tells you something about the players that these teams, especially these teams specifically, are willing to commit that kind of money to a guy. You know, Franco hasn't had the greatest start to, uh, or I guess he had a great start to his career, but he hasn't had the best sophomore season. Uh, it's hard to stay on the field, hasn't been quite the best when he's been on the field. But it tells you something about him as a player when the Rays are willing to commit this much to him financially, especially as a team that never commits to anybody financially in this way. So I, I think it's it's interesting that what we can learn from teams by how they spend their money, basically. And obviously there's a whole lot of risk here involved in the Julio Rodriguez deal. There's plenty of risk in the Wander Franco deal, plenty of risk in the, uh, the uh, Michael Harris deal. That one especially kind of caught me off guard just because of, his kind of profile and, and track record. And, and it seems a little bit like buying high on him almost, but it tells you something that these very smart, very financially conscious organizations are willing to make these commitments. They feel pretty confident that they're going to be smart commitments. And that tells you that they feel pretty confident. These are going to be really good players for the rest of their careers. Yeah. What's, and this is kind of the sort of basis of our sort of post prospect kind of adjustment as well. It's like, you know, usually it takes a couple of years to establish yourself, and then you're like, okay, I'm an established me. Austin Riley, for example, you know, uh, it took him like two years, and then he became a real big star. So, and then they extended him. So that's kind of the blueprint typically. But they're jumping the gun a little bit more and more, and saying, okay, we think he's going to have established himself. We think Michael Harris is good enough. I know it's only been a couple of months, but you know, the win, the 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 value proposition for the team is we can get him cheaper if we extend him now rather than wait two years, and you know, and if he's willing, you know, he might give up a little bit of money, you know, more so than he would have had he waited two years to fully establish himself, then that's a good investment. Keep in mind, they're, they're typically locking up the young, talented ones that they have a pretty good idea are going to sustain that level of production that they start off with. So, um, you know, and they're going to have them through their their peak years they're 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 looking ahead everything is forward looking so a lot of fans might say oh he doesn't have a track record but all the teams are looking forward they're saying do we have enough of a sample size to say yeah he's worth it and then oh my gosh if he is you know we're getting his you know he's only and he's in his young you know early 20s we're getting his mid to late 20s which are typically the peak years for well under market value and he's getting cost certainty so that's really what they're looking at yeah, and there's there's so much of a floor here even with these guys. You know, obviously there's there's the possibility of catastrophic injury, but that exists for any player, whether you're choosing to extend the 21-year-old or sign a 28-year-old free agent. There's there's always the risk that boom, he tore his ACL and he's never the same. But these up the middle young stars, there's so much of a floor there for them because even if Wander Franco isn't isn't a superstar hitter, if he's a league average bat playing a league average shortstop, that's going to provide a decent amount of value for you. And, and maybe you're still a little bit underwater in a handful of those years of the big lengthy contract, but it's not as bad as Albert Pujols hitting 210 with 10 homers in, yeah. in year three of his deal or whatever it was. Right. All right. I, I think that's uh, that's all I have for Julio. Do you have anything else there before we move on? Uh, no, but it's an interesting in contrast to the next player we're probably going to talk about. Yes, indeed. I actually do. I lied. I have one last note on Julio. I've seen this on Twitter a little bit. It's so cool that he's already just a guy we can refer to as Julio 
and everyone knows who you're talking about. He's been in the league less than a full season, and he's he's just Julio. Yep. Everyone knows him. This it, it's so cool. I'm, I'm so excited to see this kid's career. I know. I've been t- I've talking to my son about like what other sort of you know famous athletes can you just go by with with one name? You know, that's how you know you made it. But there's also a little bit of uniqueness to it. Like you know, there's not many players named LeBron, so you can go with Le- LeBron, right? But and if you have a common name like Michael. Like, you have to stop and think, which Michael? But then you know it's Michael Jordan. So, like, with Julio, it sort of splits the difference. Like, yeah, it's a common name, but, yeah, he's so good right now that everyone knows who you're talking about right now, which is, you know, a testament to how good he is. Yeah, exactly. All right, talking about another guy who who kind of gets – he got some of that first-name treatment a little bit, uh, but maybe not as much going forward because uh, his arrow is pointing the other direction now. Uh, that's Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, he, who, he, this, this hasn't been a, a great 2022 for Fernando, has it? Um, no. He started off the year with that motorcycle injury that cost him more than the first half of the season. Uh, it looked like he was just getting back from it, probably a couple weeks away from being activated, maybe even sooner. And then he gets popped for PEDs, 80 games. Uh, right after the suspension, he goes ahead and undergoes shoulder surgery, which he's kind of needed, I think, for about a year now, year and a half now. It's been recommended, but he's been playing through it. And so if he's already got these 80 games of downtime plus the offseason, might as well do it now. This is just uh, this this was some of the biggest PED related news we've had probably since A-Rod and, and Biogenesis. I'm, I'm struggling to think of a bigger name between then and now that, that got popped like this. And even then, A-Rod was on the tail end of his career. We already uh, He had already been busted once, but this is a guy who was already, in Fernando Tatis Jr., people were already getting excited about what his next 20 years were going to look like. Is, is he going to be a Hall of Famer? Is he one of these next greats that we'll tell our kids about kind of thing, grandkids? But then he gets this blemish on on his name so early in his career and it's disappointing and there's there's all the the talk about you know he he used the ringworm excuse and his dad Fernando Tatis senior said that yeah he used this product specifically and didn't know it had the the clostebol which which was the specific banned sus- substance didn't know it had it in it um and so there's there's all of that that you can talk about about whether this was actually done to enhance his performance intentionally, which I, that's just a matter of opinion. I personally don't believe it was. I, I, I think it does just read as a mistake, but it's another mistake on top of all the other ones that Tatis has made in the last couple of years, starting really with that motorcycle incident. Um, and it, it just paints a less than pretty picture of him as a player and makes it kind of hard to, to really gauge what we're going to think about him when he comes back or a couple of years down the road or, or whatever. But uh, all of that kind of subjective stuff aside, um, looking at the, at the highest, lowest player values uh, page on our site, he's second <laughs> right behind Julio, yeah. even despite this, despite the shoulder, despite the motorcycle, despite, the PEDs, despite maybe the the kind of personality questions, makeup questions that that we have now, uh, he's at 178.3. So so still a good chunk behind Julio, but he's ahead of Wander Franco, ahead of Ronald Acuna, ahead of Shane McClanahan, Austin Riley, Jose Ramirez, Juan Soto, ahead of every player other than Julio. Uh, 
so what is keeping him there and how much of an impact could this really have on him long term from obviously he, he's not a guy that's really at the top of your list to get traded anyway but from a trade value perspective what is what does this do to him yeah a lot of people are wondering like why is he so high shouldn't you know aren't the Padres just going to dump him and who would take him and like they're looking at the negative and that's a very sort of understandable thing to do it's our human nature when we are presented with negative information to kind of think oh you know the worst case scenario but in our model, our model is just a bunch of numbers, and it doesn't think about that stuff. And even if we plug in some sub- subjective things into it, it's still going to pump out objective numbers, if you will. So we can discount uh, Fernando Tatis for stupidity, for what if his shoulder is never right, what if he continues to make bad decisions, what if his performance was enhanced by PEDs such that he won't be as good a performer. Uh, going forward and you know we've discounted for as much of that as we can think of and his numbers are so good and he's so and he's 23 that it figures to still be put up really good numbers despite all of that that's the answer he was a seven war player at age 22 uh last year and that's ridiculous you know so let's say the pets you know uh but you know you can't be the Pens are not going to make you a seven-war player. Otherwise, we'd see we would have seen a lot more of that in baseball history. They'll take you know, even if you believe that um, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, you know, were not that good. You know, it, what did it add? Maybe ten percent. You know, they were still good players before that. It just sort of put them over the top. So, in other words, you can't just you know say, oh, that was all Peds that seven-war season for Fernando. Um, it was mostly him, in other words. So you're still going to get uh, mostly him going forward, and his shoulder is going to be repaired. You've still got the sort of stupid decision issue, but he's also a kid that's going to grow up, and I was impressed by his finally sort of admitting you know, and apologizing, and he seems sincere about it, so maybe he is getting some adults talking to him now, saying, get your act together. And then, you know, we've seen other players kind of grow up as well. You know, Manny Machado, when he was younger, you know, did some controversial things, maybe not things quite this stupid, but, you know, he said some dumb things and he did some dumb things. And he's, now look at him. Now he's like a, a father figure in that clubhouse. Now he's like a respected leader around the league. So people do grow up. Um, so you're still getting a ridiculous amount of value from, t- for t- excuse me, from Tatis, despite all these negatives is what I'm trying to say. There's still a ton of surplus value because he's still only 23, and you're going to get him in his prime years. And if if he does indeed grow up and kind of overcome these things, uh, you're going to get even more value out of him. So if it, if if another team, if the Padres put him on the block, I'm absolutely dead certain they would get a lot for him. Um, and and people think, oh, maybe it's not the right time because he's suspended, and it's probably not. But you know, if he comes back next year. Um, you know, and and things are different a little bit with the Padres, and they think, oh, let's put him on the block and see what we can get. They could totally rebuild our farm by trading Tatis. He's a young superstar that would be welcome, I think, by many, many other teams. So you have to kind of weigh the good against the bad. And what we're saying is there's a lot of good in the sense of his future productivity. And even if you discount the bad for stupidity and shoulder and whatever, and pads, you're still getting mostly good going forward. So that's what that number is reflecting. Yeah, I think people are maybe, I I think people are too hard on him for all this. And granted, I'm, 
I liked Tatis before all this, and so I'm I'm going into it with some bias, and I love watching it play. I love the energy, and like, like I said before, I don't think this was done with the intent of I'm going to take PEDs and and hit 60 home runs, or I'm going to take PEDs and that'll get me back on the field faster. I, I kind I have no sense of confidence with with this belief, but I I tend to believe it was an accident like like he's claiming and like many other players recently have claimed um so so i come into it with some bias here but that he's 23 and and granted you know there, there's kind of the debate there of oh he's 23 he's a kid or oh he's 23 he's an adult now he should be able to make smarter decisions and and yeah he's 23 i'm 23 i haven't done anything this stupid but when you consider kind of the the roller coaster that he's been on it makes a little sense that he he's made some mistakes and, and needed kind of this wake-up call you know he's he grew up the son of a big leaguer and living that kind of lifestyle and then he's a, a highly heralded international prospect signs with the white Sox, and as a teenager he gets traded to the padres immediately he gets to the big leagues and he's pretty much from day one he's the face of san diego <laughs> like he's he's the guy there and then pretty quickly from there, he's one of the faces of baseball. He gets handed this big extension. He's still just in his early 20s. Like, how do you not let that all go to your head and, and you know, be a little bit reckless on a motorcycle or not double, triple check with your agents and the team before you use ringworm medication or, or whatever the case is? How do you not make some mistakes with that kind of story? But I think there's a lot of, I, I totally agree with you that his candor and honesty um with his kind of public statement uh to the media and and with him immediately undergoing the shoulder surgery that people had criticized him for not doing sooner i think that shows that this was a wake-up call it shows some signs of maturity he didn't appeal the suspension he he started to and then i think he opted not to Uh, just just kind of get it out of the way now so you're not missing even more of 2023 so I think he's already showing some signs of of growing up and and it's already it's going to depend on what he looks like when he's back on the field getting ready to get back on the field, you know, does he let himself get out of shape during this time or does he keep working, keep stay in the gym every day and and make sure he's at 100% when he is able to be activated next season. Um it's going to depend a lot on that, but I I totally agree with you. There's nothing here that shows that he would be a sunk cost or, or anything close to that. He's he's still an insanely talented, insanely young, and, and under substantial team control. So teams would be lining up and throwing all their prospects at the Padres to get him if he were available. Yeah, and I also read something that he's going to spend the winter in San Diego, um, which I interpreted as, hey, <laughs> stay here. Don't go back to, is it the Dominican where he's from? Um and like he may have some friends that he you know, or that encourage him to do stupid things like ride motorcycles in traffic or whatever, you know. So like just stay here, be calm, you know, hang out in San Diego. Nothing much happens in San Diego, you know, so over the winter, um, so that we can kind of keep an eye on you and grow up a little bit. Um, so that's good news. The other thing I wanted to point out: we've had some re- recent examples of guys who have been busted for PEDs and came back from it. And if you think that it was all PED. Uh, driven performance before that, you can compare the before and after. So Frankie Montas a couple of years ago was busted, and he came back from that, and he had a pretty good year this year and last year. So, and he's presumably not on them. So, and that might have been an accident as well. Um, Ramon Laureano, 
um, I'm looking at Fangraphs right now. Um, when he did get busted, he had played 88 games last year in 2021, put up 1.9 F4, uh, had a 113 WRC+. As it happens, he's played 84 games this year after coming back from the suspension, and he's at 1.4 F4, 106 WRC+. Uh, his numbers are pretty close to the same, same walk rate, same strikeout rate. In other words, the PEDs didn't make that much of a difference in either of those cases. Maybe a little bit, but... You know, Laureano had a 113 WEP URC plus, now he's got a 106. So that's the difference. Like, if you think that made that much of a difference in Tatis's seven war season, it's not that he's going to go down to like a two war player. You know, even if you think it made a difference, he would go down to like a six and a half war player. Like, it's not that much of a guy. So, and that's why those numbers are still big. And that's all. That's all operating under this assumption that he was using actively during that season with the intent of it improving his performance, right? right. We nobody can say that with any level of certainty. So there's a whole lot of ifs for you to get to the conclusion that Tatis will be a worse player because he isn't using steroids anymore when he comes back. That that that's a so many ifs to get you there. Um generally like i said like it, it just seems like a lot of these are pure mistakes because they're these weird you know everybody's i mean f from the devil's advocate position you know everybody's just using the same excuse of oh i didn't know this protein powder or medication or whatever had this thing in it and you know if you're if you're a big league player making millions of dollars you should probably be more careful and checking with your team or your agent or whoever before you put anything into your body yeah that's that's a given but it just does seem like this common trend. And I think there was there was an article about it in The Athletic about a year ago that was really good. I'll try to find that and link it. Um, that was just talking to all these major and minor league players that they all, and you can say they're lying or whatever, but they all pretty firmly said, this was a pure mistake. I had no idea this substance was in it. And the, the amount of this substance that was in my body was so low it's just that MLB's thresholds for this stuff are very, very low as well before they ring the bell and suspend you. So there's there's kind of an... I'm, I'm sensing kind of an issue <laughs> with the, the, the PED suspensions lately, and we might see some movement on that front in the next few years of MLB adjusting their policies. Um, but it, it, unless it's a case, you know, a Henry Mejia or a Robinson Cano where it's a very clear repeat offender and, and yeah, you fool me once, shame on me fool me twice shame on you or i, I might have said that backwards <laughs> uh, but uh, unless it's a case like that i, I mean I, I think it's it's pretty clear you can we can allow robinson cano's kind of reputation to be tarnished like it, it's okay if you're if you don't view him the same way as you used to but some of these other guys it just does seem like a mistake i don't know yeah we don't know for sure if it was i mean there's a flip side to that argument um where you know, a prominent player, especially guys like Tatis, who's a young superstar, um, like if he's around the team and the trainers, like, you know, they all tell them, hey, don't don't take anything without telling us. If you're at all suspicious, don't take it. Even if it's something like in your shampoo, let us know. We'll look at the agreement. We'll let us know. We don't want you to get busted for these things, you know, just because you made a mistake. Um, like, or if they're injured, and they put some sort of like lotion or cream on and they don't know what's in it. Like, you know, teams nowadays have kind of policies for this. Talk to us before you do any of that. And so the flip side of that is he didn't, which which implies that, um, you know, 
he might have known that he was taking something that that wasn't right and then wanted to kind of hide it or work around it. I don't know for sure. I don't want to speculate. But there is a whole camp of people that say, no, no, no. <laughs> he's, he's always around team people. They should have told him. He should have gone to them first before doing any of that. And so he's just stupid for not doing so. Yeah, I think when you view it in the greater picture with the motorcycle incident, you can kind of paint this narrative of him just being reckless. Like, I think I'd use the word reckless. Some other people might use yeah, stupid or, yeah. or careless, but more of that. And I mean, again, flip side, you can you can say, yeah, reckless enough to intentionally use a PED and think he wouldn't get caught. That's reckless. <laughs> but I don't know. Everyone's going to have their own way they view this. And I think he's going to it's up to him what the narrative is going forward. If he is, like I said, if he's working out all off season, comes back the same guy or better then I think he can silence a lot of, not all of it, but silence a lot of the hate, a lot of the doubt. Uh, but we're going to have to wait and see on that. But <laughs> a, yeah. a whole bunch of uh, subjectivity and opinions aside, numbers, he's he's still a very, very good, very, very valuable baseball player. He is. And I just want to, one more character anecdote. You remember last season there was some, um, there was an incident when they were, the Padres were in D.C. playing the Nationals and there was a, an active shooter alert. Um, and people weren't sure if it was inside the stadium or what, um, but people were freaking out. Tatis was one of the guys who invited fans to come through the dugout for safety. He kept shepherding them into the dugout. In other words, he actually like was a decent person and cared about them. And I thought that was very mature and decent of him. He's a good guy, people. Don't paint him with a bad brush. Agreed. One final point, very minor point on kind of the numbers of it all. Um, we pointed out last year when Ramon Laureano was suspended that it actually kind of boosted his value because it gave him that additional year of team control since he didn't earn service time while he was on the, uh, I believe it's the restricted list. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the case here with Tatis, obviously, because he's already locked up on this extension. He doesn't earn service time during it, but it doesn't actually matter from a, from a years of control standpoint. Uh, but he won't get paid for the 80 games and he's not into that really meaty part of his contract yet, but he, he's making a few million. It's, it's gonna, it's gonna save the Padres a few million, the end of this year and the beginning of next year. And so that's not when your when your value is 178 million, your surplus 178 million, a few million dollars of salary, isn't going to move the needle much, but it's, it's worth mentioning, I think. Yeah. Just on that point. So he was scheduled to make five million this year, seven million next year. So, you know, he's missing about a third of next season. So we have him at like four point seven. They don't actually make last year. And that's still a decent chunk of money for a baseball player. Uh, but you're right. The, he really gets paid kind of a year after that. And starting in twenty four, he makes eleven. Then it goes into twenties and twenty fives and thirty. So, um, so in a way, it's better that he's foregoing the smaller amount now for his sake and Padres do save a couple of bucks. It's true. And I know I keep saying one last point, but I keep thinking of, of other angles for this. Um, also last year with Ramon Laureano, the news kind of dropped a day or two after the trade deadline and after the A's had acquired Starling Marte. Um, and so there was kind of some speculation of, Oh, the team might've known this was coming. Laureano is in the appeals process. He's probably been in that process for a few weeks at least. So there was extra incentive while they waited for that to, to figure itself out, extra incentive for him, the team to go out and acquire another outfielder to kind of uh, as insurance in case they did lose Loriano. 
Uh, I don't think it was the same case here with the Padres trading for Soto. I think, excuse me, I think every report that's come out has been pretty clear that they were blindsided by this as well and didn't know about it until very, very recently. If, if they even knew at all before the official league announcement. Um, so just, just wanted to make that clear that I, I don't think the Soto trade was at all related to this. Um, I haven't followed that angle of it so much, so I'll take your word for that. Cool. Are you ready to move on to a couple yeah. of smaller transactions? Yeah. All right. So a couple of pitchers I want to talk about. This this first one was really interesting, really caught me off guard, and uh, it can lead to some some speculation for the future. Uh, the Rays extended Tyler Glasnow through 2024, and we haven't talked about Glasnow much recently. We talked about him last deadline and last offseason a fair bit because there were some rumors that the Rays discussed trading him to the Cubs. Um that would have been, he, he hasn't pitched yet this year. He underwent Tommy John surgery, I believe middle of the year last season, maybe later in the year. Um, he, he had already undergone the surgery when the Cubs and Rays were talking about that trade. And so there was, there's kind of this, this angle of it where, you know, he's going to miss most, if not all of 2022. And then he's going to come back for his final year of team control in 2023 and guys are usually not quite at 100% in that first year back from Tommy John, plus there might be an innings limit, blah, 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 blah. And so there's this consideration of, yeah, the Rays might be inclined to trade him, and they might not get a, a ton for him because of all these issues, but he might fit better on another team than he would on the Rays. Well, the Rays changed their mind on that one, or not, not changed their mind, I guess they, <laughs> they bucked the norm on that one. Uh, they signed him to this really interesting extension and it's kind of reminiscent of they were one of the first teams to sign those tommy john free agents nady Evaldi is coming to mind um where you give them a few million dollars guaranteed in that first year while the, while they're recovering and then either a higher salary or a higher club option or whatever for that second year when you expect them to be back healthy uh, they were one of the first teams to do that because they're always you know trying to find new ways to to find value and they're kind of setting the market in a lot of places because they're the genius rays. And so this is kind of similar to that. They're going to pay glass. Now his 5.35 million next season, which is, his, like I mentioned, his final year of arbitration eligibility. And that's roughly what he made this year. I believe, I believe he was making 5 million this 5. year. One, Yeah. Yeah. And, and which makes sense. You know, he wasn't going to get an arbitration bump because he didn't, pitch in 2022 he might make it back for a few innings right. but even then he wasn't going to get some big bump in his last year of arbitration uh but then they give him 25 million dollars in 2024 which is first year of free agency so it's interesting here it it, it, it adjusts his value uh we originally before this extension we had him at 20.3 and now he's at 35.7 uh, because he's adding that additional year of team control um and, and on the one hand, you say it locks in a year of glass now that you expect to be at full strength. Uh, you know, 2023 might have some some issues, an innings limit, something like that, um, in his first full season back from Tommy John. But 2024, you expect him to be back to himself, and it locks him in in that season at a below market rate. Because if Tyler Glass now is at 100%, he's commanding 30 to 35 million on the open market per year because he's very very good. Yep. So on the one hand, yeah, that's a very smart value conscious move by the Rays. On the other hand, they don't really hand out these kinds of contracts. They don't pay many players 20 plus million dollars a year. So do they trade him 
next trade deadline? Do they trade him next offseason? I don't think this like clearly indicates that by any means, but that option is going to be on the table for them. So it's it's really whether they keep him or not, it's just another smart move by them to they're taking on a bit of a risk here, but they're also creating some value from somewhere where there originally wasn't as much. So a smart, interesting move by them. Yeah, and um, I think they're really looking at it as, you know, the field value point of view is really a driving force here because if you can imagine their starting rotation with a healthy Glasnow back at the top, you got McClanahan, you got two aces basically, McClanahan and, and Glasnow. And then you got Drew Rasmussen, who's really pitching well the last couple of times out. Um, and, you know, even Patino, who's been kind of a disappointment, uh, is starting to perk up a little bit. Uh, Jeffrey Springs, kind of, you know, <laughs> waiver claim rehab guy, just suddenly turned into a starter. Like, you know, they'll probably make another deal or two because they're the Rays. Um, but you can see them having, like, at least a top three of McClanahan, Glasnow, Rasmussen. And then... Um, you know, and then see what they kind of piece together after that. But I think they're looking at it from that point of view. Like, they really want to compete. They figure they're going to get a healthier Franco next year, um, and of course they've got some good prospects coming. So they're, you know, their their wheels are always turning anyway. But I think that's mostly more more about that. Um, the only other thing I wanted to point out was they they kind of had to eat that five point one million dollar salary of Glasnow while he was rehabbing. Obviously, they didn't get anything on the field for him. And so you can think about it as, well, we ate that, so it's okay that we, you know, we're going to try to get a little bit of surplus back on the other end, you know, by giving him a slightly under market value as if to say, okay, well, either way, we've we've kind of evened it out. Um, um, and I think it's good from Glasnow's point of view because it gives him a little bit more of a, of close to market value before he's back to establishing himself so he doesn't have to worry about putting all you know putting so much pressure on him in his walk year next year he's he's good you know so he can kind of take his time getting him get the feel back and everything knowing that he's got another year at at, at a good payday 25 million in 2024 so i think it works for both parties yeah i really i was about to make that last point that you did that it (laughs) that it provides a lot of security on both ends where in 2023 both sides might have been somewhat incentivized to blow past an innings limit or just push him a little bit further than maybe he should have based on the health of his arm because as you mentioned he was set to hit the open market after that year and he wants to put out the very best showing that he can so he can maximize his free agent earnings and the Rays they just lost out on him for this season they're going to want to get as much out of him as they could before he hit free agency but if by locking in that second year at a pretty substantial rate, both sides are now incentivized. Yes, we want to, we want you on the field and we want you pitching as much as you can and as, as well as you can in 2023. But there's another important year after that where we are, we are both invested in, in your health and success in that season equally. And where we're going to take every precaution that we need to and that we should during 2023 to make sure that 2024 is full strength, like we're hoping. So it, it aligns the team and the players' incentives uh, much much more closely yeah. and much uh, much better for his long-term career than I, I think they might. And I'm not, not saying this to suggest that the Rays were going to run him into the ground in 2023 if they didn't sign him to this deal. Uh, but it just it just removes any of those concerns. Yeah, I think it's it's smart and it's good you know, for the player 
too, so he can relax a little bit and take his time to kind of work himself back. Because, you know, the, as you pointed out, the first year back of Tommy John is, you know, you're not quite there yet. It takes you to get a, get the feel, the rhythm, and the, you know, the just the, you know, kind of the, you know, stretched out. You know, Lance Lynn, I remember after coming back from it, was not quite that good. But then the second year back after that, Zach Wheeler's another one. Um, you know, there's a lot of examples of guys. First year back after Tommy John, eh. Second year back, okay, that's the real guy. So I think that's what they're thinking as well. Yeah, yeah, I definitely see that. All right, another pitcher who's maybe a little less valuable, a little, little bit more disappointing here. Uh, Walker Bueller had to go undergo Tommy John surgery. He's been out for a while this season with some arm trouble, some elbow trouble, but it took him a while to actually get Tommy John to decide to do so. Uh, so because of that, he's going to be missing most, if not all of 2023, um, especially since I believe it's his second. Yeah, it's his second Tommy John surgery. Um, he, he first underwent it after being drafted. Uh, so when he was still a prospect back in 2015. And uh, the, the rehab period from a second Tommy John is both more risky and I, I believe it takes longer. So pretty certain that he'll be missing the entire 2023 season. Um, and so that effectively tanks his value. <laughs> so he is under team control for two more seasons, 2023 and 2024. But if he's missing the entirety of 2023 and the 2024 season, as we were just mentioning, we can't project him to be at full strength right off the bat in that season. Um, th there's just not, a whole lot to to love here for his for him going forward plus he's getting paid in both of those years and it's going to be a similar situation to glass now where he's going to get a pretty similar salary in each of those two years of arbitration uh, so we're not expecting any price hike or anything we have his salary for those two years projected at 8.4 million uh, combined but yeah it, it's it's not a great picture for his value he's down to 6.8 now uh, he already wasn't having a great season before the Tommy John surgery itself. Uh, I mean, excuse me, before he went on the injured list, he was already kind of struggling this season. And, and you can definitely attribute some of that to the injury, I think, because he's he's shown a very consistent, very strong track record throughout his big league career. He's, he's a very, very good big league pitcher. Uh, there's, there's no question about that. But there are questions about how he comes back from the second Tommy John, and there's only one season of team control left for him once he does. So I would, if I were a betting man, you know, the, the Dodgers have been quietly making some, like, kind of injury-related gambles on, on players. They signed Blake Trinan to a weird extension with him being on the injured list most of the year. Uh, they just extended Muncie for another year. I believe there was one other name that they 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 signed one of these injury extensions uh, to, to kind of gamble that they'd come back healthy and they could get him below market rate for another year. I might be making that up. It might have just been those two. Yeah. Um. But Bueller seems like a great candidate for that because he is so talented when he's healthy. I, I could very well see them coming to some sort of an agreement similar to the Glassnow deal, similar to the Trinan deal, um, and, and locking him up for at least another year or two to get another year of him at full strength on the back end of the deal. But for now, at least, his value has gone way down because, as I said, you're paying him money next year and not getting any production, and that production in 2023, Four is a bit of a question mark now, even though he is such a talented pitcher. So yeah, and uh, yeah, so you really you're paying two, you know, 
paying for two years of him and getting one iffy year on the back end of that. So, yeah, that's gonna his value is gonna go down a little bit more on our next update um, because it's gonna f accurately factor that in. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, all you can say here is just hope for the best, you know, for you know the players' sake and the team's sake. Um, but you know, it's they're not gonna lose any value necessarily out in the deal, but um, they can afford it. They're the Dodgers, but um, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. He's he's not a, a trade candidate anyway. I don't. I wouldn't think so. Uh, it's just kind of a wash. Yeah, and, and being the Dodgers, the, the day they get this news, Dustin May comes back from his Tommy John surgery yeah. and strikes out what like eight or nine batters in five innings, throwing ninety eight, looking like his usual self. So, I don't think they'll hurt too much as a team from it, but it's it's definitely disappointing. Bueller is a very very good pitcher very underrated and he's been incredibly durable in the big leagues so it's disappointing to see it the injury bug finally catch him but you know the dodgers are smart about this you know they always try to plan ahead for especially for rotation arms you know they typically try to have like seven you know that's why they signed tyler anderson who's been really good for them you know and you think oh he was a depth guy well he ended up being one of their their top guys and he you know they got the most out of him so they're always trying to think ahead like they need at least seven guys to get through a season probably even more and so they'll just continue to do that yeah and they have such a insane pipeline of talent between scouting drafting developing that they're always going to have new young arms ready either as reinforcements or to mm -hmm. trade for a more trustworthy arm yep I, I don't see that pipeline ending anytime soon no they got ryan pepio who's already kind of you know gotten his feet wet um a couple other guys gavin stone's been kind of a, a hot riser and you know in their system this year and um and the one guy whose name i'm blanking on who's kind of their top pitching prospect is uh bobby miller uh who's i think it's been a double a but he might actually be ready to kind of take the next step so um you know i can see them using any any combination of those three guys next year as well. Yeah, it looks like Miller's up to AAA now. He's made a couple starts there. I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if they kind of fast track him and have him be their relief ace in the bullpen, chucking a hundred out of the bullpen. That, mm -hmm. that would be uh, in the postseason rather. That that would be fun to watch. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's all we have for individual players. And uh, unless you have anything else to add, I think we're good to move on to move the on. front office movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we had three teams, uh, unless I'm missing any, we had three teams uh, with some real significant uh, front office movement, front office news. It's, it's the Angels, where Artie Moreno is exploring selling the team. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of jumped the gun on this and said, the, whoop, the, he is selling the team. He's no longer the owner, but... Uh, right now, they're just in that exploratory phase, and we know it can take a little while sometimes. You know, the, the learners have been in that stage for a while with the Nationals, and they haven't pulled the trigger yet on a, on a sale. So I uh, don't know when we'll see that, but that is big, big news, and we'll get deeper into that for sure. Uh, the Tigers fired general manager Al Avila. Uh, he's been there for a while, and it, it hasn't quite worked out for them. Their, their rebuild has not gone according to plan, at least at this point. And the Rangers fired Don Daniels, and he has been just a fixture in baseball. He's definitely one of the longest tenured GMs or, or baseball ops guys uh, in the games. It's been, I'm pretty sure, nearly 20 years that he's been with the Rangers and running the team. And so those are three very, very significant developments uh, for a few disappointing teams. Uh, where do you want to start with those three? Um, let's just take them in order. So the Angels, 
<laughs> oh my gosh. So let's assume Moreno does sell the team. Um, I think if if you're an Angels fan, you've got to be cheering from the rooftops at this news because, you know, from what we've gathered based on what we've heard and seen in the industry, um, you know, he's gone through multiple GMs. At some point, you realize it's not the GM's fault. It's his fault because he has a tendency to meddle. He has a tendency to not make smart baseball decisions. And you can see it in the results. You know, you've had two superstars, Trout and Otani, and nothing to show for it. And so he has a tendency to kind of, you know, uh, pay too much for guys like Anthony Rendon and not have much budget left to do anything else. So the GMs are always kind of hamstrung. So it's a kind of a stars and scrubs model that has not been working. And he has a history of doing this. So the hope for Angels fans is you get a new owner. Um, hopefully he won't be quite as... Uh, you know, uh, hands-on necessarily for vetoing other decisions that presumably the GMs would have recommended a different way of doing that. And so to give them a little hope. Now, the downside is they've got a really weak farm. And so that basically it's a bad combination of weak MLB team and weak farm. You know, usually one of those problems you can overcome with either money or prospects. But in this case, you've got neither because you've got too much money tied up and you've got a bad farm. So there's not really any hope on the horizon in the short term. So this is more about, if you're an Angels fan, kind of changing the model in the long run. I think they need to look at um, you know, a new sort of approach to developments because they haven't really turned out any great prospects who became superstars. Joe Adele's been struggling, for example. Um, so you having the pitching staff is constantly a problem. So you've got all these sorts of issues that clearly point to organizational I'm going to say incompetence, and that starts at the top. So if you make a change there, hopefully you get, you know, in the long run, you're going to be better for it. I'm not sure if the long run is going to include, you know, Trout and Otani, because by the time they're good again, they solve all these problems, those guys may be done. Uh, but at least you're, uh, you'll get back on the right track. Yeah, I'm, I want to be more optimistic here. <laughs> I am as big of a Trout and Otani fan as anyone, and I want to see them succeed. I want them back in the playoffs next year. Uh, but I think people are maybe jumping the gun a little bit on what this news actually means for the Angels, because yes, uh, Marino, bad. <laughs> he has not done a great job with the team. As you said, it's a dysfunctional organization, and that starts at the top, and, and he's been meddling, and he needs to... When you're, when you're an owner, you should be letting the smart baseball ops guys run the show. You should be hiring smart baseball ops guys and letting them run the show rather than intervening at the level that he has. Um, so that's clearly been a problem for them and it's clearly shot them in the foot. I, I don't know how much of, you know, things like Pujols and Rendon and back Josh Hamilton and, and stuff like that. I don't know how much of that you can directly attribute to him, but any of it that you can is, is clearly not a good thing. Uh, but on the flip side of that, he has spent... And, you know, he hasn't spent to the Dodgers threshold, which maybe, you know, you could you could argue that the Angels should spend closer to that being in such a large market um, and, and having the, the star power to bring to put butts in the seats, even in kind of an older stadium. Um, you could argue that they should be spending at the Dodgers level. But I don't think, you know, even even if Moreno sells the team this offseason, I don't think you're guaranteed to get a big spender replacing him. So it might be, you know, it might be kind of a double double-edged sword kind of thing where the new guy comes in and yeah, he's not going to mess with the team as much, but maybe he's also not 
handing out the blank checks the way that Moreno did sometimes. So I, I'm I'm not getting ahead of myself here. This is going to this is going to alter the Angels organization, I think, for the better. I just don't know, uh, like like you were kind of alluding to, I don't know how soon we see those changes actually, um, or whether it's it's long after Otani is gone and Trout's well into the decline stage of his of his career. You know, it can't get any worse, right? Because <laughs> you know they haven't been to the playoffs in how many years? And, you know, they've squandered the best years of two superstars, so it can't get any worse. And they've got a terrible part, you know, like on and on. Um, and look, Moreno does have kind of a track record of you know. He likes the shiny toys. He will pay, to your point. He will pay, but he doesn't seem to understand that you need a balance. You know, he overpays for Rendon and guys like that, and then there's nothing left for the rest of the team. So that's been the problem. And I think he's he's got Dodgers envy as well. He's very, you know, that's why he sort of branded the team as a Los Angeles team instead of the Anaheim Angels or whatever. So, and he's trying to kind of keep up with the Joneses too much by, like, signing stars where where he feels like he has to. And that's just not working. So just, okay, you just play a different game. You know, you're not going to win in that game. You're not going to beat the Dodgers at the Dodgers game because you're just not the Dodgers. So let's accept that and move on. <clears throat> the other thing I think that plays a lot into this, and I don't know the all the details, but, you know, that whole, like, stadium land deal fell through. And there's, like, you know, there was a politician who was charged with corruption, and that whole thing seems really fishy, and now he wants to sell the team. So... It seems like you can infer from that for that the play was, oh, I'm going to get one of these cushy real estate deals, and that's going to solve my problem. But then that fell through, and now like, okay, now I don't want the problem anymore, so I'm just going to sell the team because yeah, I'm not going to get the real estate money. So you got to feel like there's something there. Um, so the next owner may not get that, um, and they may just be getting the team and whatever their stadium lease is. Uh, so he's basically you know, kicking the can down the road and saying, okay, it's your problem now. Um, so that's a factor as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have two kind of silly questions, hypotheticals for you. <laughs> so first off, the Otani question. I I feel pretty comfortable saying that if, if the Angels hold him through the offseason and they aren't competitive in 2023, I think he they trade him at the deadline. I don't think there's any shot they extend him unless until they prove that they are going to compete. So I think he'll be on his expiring contract. And I think he's the gem of the deadline next year if they don't compete in the first half. Uh, but do you think the, what do you think this potential sale of the team means for the chances that they trade him in the off season? Do you think it's, it's anything different? Do you think it depends? You know, there's too many question marks. It depends who they sell him to and what direction they decide to head. Or do you think it makes it more or less likely? I mean, on paper, you got to, because right now we have his estimate at around 80 million in surplus. So that's going to, you know, get you a good chunk of prospect value. Well, 80 million in prospect value is a fair deal. Um, so, and you've got a terrible farm, so that's the best way because he's on an expiring deal, right? You only got him for one more year, and the more you wait, the less you're going to get. So if you wait till the deadline, you're going to get maybe half that, you know, 40, 50-ish million. So why not trade him now? Because you're not, you know, if you know you're going to sell the team, then what do you care? <laughs> you know. Um, but on the other hand, maybe he wants to go out with a bang and like, yeah, it's my last shot. Let's see if we're competitive. And then wait till the deadline and throw in the towel if not. Um, I don't know. I'd, I, I'm not going to read Artie Moreno's mind. All I can say is on paper, it's probably better to set, to trade him this offseason. All right. Now this is the sillier question. I'm handing you $3 billion or whatever it would cost. 
uh, you can't spend it on anything else. You have to choose. Are you buying the Los Angeles Angels or the Washington Nationals? Uh, well, that's a tough one. Uh, I mean, they both have their pros and cons, and that would take some deeper analysis. Um, my first gut instinct was I'm buying the Nationals because I think they're kind of in a stronger market. But then that's weird because L.A. is L.A., and that's huge, and I used to live there. Um, so maybe not. Um, I have to think about that. But there's, you know, and there's, um, I broadcast rights issues with, with, you know, that dispute between the Nats and the Orioles. I'm not sure where that's at. But that seems like a smaller issue than the big stadium issue. So I don't know. That's probably why. Um, one, that's one thing. The second reason is after the Soto trade, they've got a much better farm. And I'm going to be posting our latest sort of farm value rankings next week and that'll that'll come to pass a little bit but you know they got a good haul for soto and some good draft picks and so they're starting to you know the rebuild is starting to start to look like a real thing so they're in a much better spot than the angels from that standpoint you can see them being competitive again in like maybe two to three years as opposed to the angels where i can't see any light at the tunnel at all my kind of counter there, I definitely agree that there's there's a lot of pros and cons both sides. One of them is, you know, we mentioned the dysfunction of the whole front office talent development, et cetera, within the Angels organization. And, and the Nationals maybe don't have that dysfunction quite, but they are a, a more traditional scouting heavy team. They're not quite as analytical as everyone else. And for people like you and I, we might value a bit more of an analytical approach. And so if you were to put in this wild hypothetical to buy the Nationals, you'd probably have your work cut out for you there and in, in bringing them closer to the to 2022. Um, but my kind of rebuttal there is that, yes, the Nationals farm is better than the Angels right now. But if you're talking about trading Otani anyway, you're about to add 80 million in prospects to the Angels farm. And they... They have a couple pieces there. I, I think the Angels, I, I may be mistaken by this. You can correct me if I am, but I think the Angels farm now is better than the Washington Nationals farm was before the Soto trade. Is that correct? Or, or do you think that's correct based on what you remember? It's it's pretty close, I think. Um, so after they traded for Ohapi and Nito, and, well, they drafted Nito, um, those guys are both in the 20s. So that's got them at 109.8 in our model. I believe the Nationals... Well, they got like 135 million. So you just, well, yeah, they were right around 100. They're very close, right? Um, I, we're also factoring, and they drafted Elijah Green, who's got 20. You know, so they they they're bumping it up both from trades and from from drafting, just like the Angels have. I don't know. It's very close. It's probably a wash. Yeah, and Angels have Detmers and Sandoval, and and I don't think the Nationals really have anybody that's quite at that i mean unless you really like kybert ruiz josiah gray's been pretty meh for them yeah. so it's splitting hairs at that point uh, i think as long as you're counting the influx of prospects from a theoretical otani deal the yeah. the, the farm systems will end up pretty close after Fair enough. that yeah but yeah it's a, it's an interesting question i i don't know what i would pick either i'd have to really look at it for a while yeah, I mean, I know. Sorry, just what you know. I know one of the names rumored to be interested in the, the Nats is uh, Ted Theonsis, who owns a couple other teams in the D.C. area, and so you can kind of. And then other people are speculating about um, possible owners on in the Anaheim area. Um, so, like, you can kind of sort of see, like, a guy like Leonsis kind of putting together a network of sports teams and you know, making that a little bit more of a package kind of approach, which maybe give him some, maybe gives him some 
financial advantages. I'm not quite sure. Um, but you could maybe see something like something like that happening as opposed to an out of town order owner who who doesn't have any other sort of stake in the you know things. I, I know one of the names people are speculating about with um, with the Angels is uh, Steve Ballmer, former Microsoft guy, owner of the Clippers. So so what they're doing is they're basically saying, hey, you if you already own one or two teams in the area. Now get a third one, and you can have like marketing advantages and other types of things. I don't know if there's any truth to that. I haven't studied it, um, but that's another sort of factor. If a guy like Leonsis, uh, Leonsis buys the Nats, maybe there's some sort of um, you know um, some is greater than the parts kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. All right, two more teams to cover. Um, Tigers, what a mess. <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, they they had their whole they had a great team that couldn't win the World Series and that happens sometimes. I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to blame them for for getting as far as they did and just falling short a few times. That's not on anybody. That's just the playoffs being a crapshoot. Um so they did well and then they kind of had to rebuild, which it happens. It's the natural life cycle of a team. Uh, but that rebuild hasn't gone according to plan, and it's it's way too early to write off Riley Green or Spencer Torkelson or, or any of these kind of young prospects that have come up and, and sputtered out. Uh, but you can look and see, okay, well, they extended Miguel Cabrera toward the end of that competitive window, and that hasn't gone well at all. Uh, you can look at uh, the Eduardo Rodriguez signing that's been a disaster this year, the Javier Baez extension, or not extension, the free agent signing that's also not been exactly i mean it's clearly hasn't been what they expected it hasn't been too far out of line from i think what you and i expected from him he's he's just not great he's a very volatile player and and he's playing like like you would reasonably expect javier baez to play but kind of so the worst version wrong. of baez though there's a good version yes. of bahavi and then there's kind of a bad we're getting kind of the bad version right <laughs> And it's it's a weird version. I don't want to get too far into this, but his strikeout rate is way down. It's almost the lowest in his career. He's just also not putting in, hitting the ball with any kind of authority. It's 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 a weird line for Javi Baez this year, and and he's a guy who is the king yeah. of weird batting lines. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, nothing has gone well for the Tigers in the last calendar year or so, except for maybe Tariq Skubal, who who's a very good pitcher, and whoops, he's hurt now. So. Nothing has gone oh, right boy. for the Tigers. No. And so Alavila's out the door. What what what's the fallout from this? I mean, I don't want to get too deep into speculation on names to take over next because there's not really any reason to to do that until there is somebody who's actually rumored to be taking over. But what do you think their kind of direction is the next couple of years? So uh, you said it right at the beginning. They are a mess. And one of the worst things you can see is like a rebuild that fails to meet its goals. I think what they thought they had was like three star pitchers in Mize, Manning, and Scooble, and it hasn't really come to pass. Scooble's the only one that really has panned out so far, and now he's injured, so you basically 0 for 3 there, and there's really nothing else much to kind of... Uh, and then they signed... Uh, uh, what's his name? <clears throat> Eduardo Rodriguez, who had his own issues, and so he would have been in, a, in theory, yeah, number three starter, number two maybe... Uh, with the other guys kind of in the mix, so but none of that really panned out. So so you've got no rotation, so that's bad. And then you know everyone thought, okay, well let's see, they've got three good pitchers, and so they just need to sprinkle in some good young position players. 
And then Torkelson disappointed. Even Riley Green's kind of not gotten off to a good start. So like, <laughs> you know, and there's nothing else coming. That was those were your big guys, and they have none of them have delivered. And so, and now your farm is kind of depleted as well. There's not that much going on there. Um, Jackson Job is still in low A. Go Lakeland Flying Tigers. Um, I missed him, but I saw him twice. I saw the team twice, but I was hoping to see Job, but he wasn't there. Um, and you know. There's not a whole lot of value in the farm. So you've basically got, once again, like the Angels, bad MLB team, bad farm. So the good news is at least your owner seems a little bit more like he's reasonable and not meddling. And people have said good things about him. So you would think, okay, that's probably the more attractive job if you're a GM right now because you at least have that support. Uh, but you've got so much work to do, um, you know. Um, like, I don't know, like, I've thought about this. Do you, do you say, okay, the rebuild failed, so let's just trade anybody with value and start over, and that's going to take another four or five years, and the fan base is, like, impatient, and you're going, ah, no, we can't wait another four or five years. Or do you say, oh, okay, we're going to just use money then and sign a bunch more Javier Baez types. Oh, that didn't go too well either. So, like, what, what are you going to do, you know? Uh, there's not really anybody you can build around. It, you know, unless you take the optimistic scenario about Green and Torkelson and maybe Scooble. So, but that still means you've got like a couple of years before you're building around, like, and there's only so much money you can spend and too many holes to fill. So that's not good either, right? So, like, there's no, I don't see a path. I'm, I'm, I don't get it. I think it's got to be, <clears throat> I think you kind of have to be patient if you're them because. Torkelson and Green were two of the top five prospects in baseball coming into the year, and you just don't have that very often on one team. You, you don't have those two guys coming up at the same time. And so, yeah, they're going to have some growing pains, but you still have to view them as potential stars. And so I don't know if it makes sense to tear it all down right now, and then you're going to watch them rise to stardom on a garbage team. <laughs> but also, I'm, I'm with you. There's not much – there aren't any obvious, like – oh, this guy will be a free agent in two years, so let's flip him now and, and get some pieces that will help us when we're ready. There aren't any obvious guys like that on the team. And there also aren't enough obvious trade candidates as, as like prospects for them to push chips in and get big league players. So I think they need to kind of take a medium approach, lay it back a little bit, target 2024, 2025. By then Cabrera will be off the books and they can sign another couple big players with that money. Um, I don't know though. Yeah, I, I, it's a, it's a weird spot where they kind of, they kind of, I think they just have to get smart, maybe make some, some of those smart waiver wire addition. I know it's easier said than done, but yeah. you know, pick up those, those cheap guys for nothing that end up being two war players and, and put those guys around green and, uh, and Torkelson and hopefully a better Javier Baez and, and see if you can at least get yourself back to 500. Yeah. So maybe you take. So it sounds like what you're talking about is like the model that Farhan Zaidi uh, is using in San Francisco, which is yeah, be patient, wait for the farm guys to kind of bubble up. But meanwhile, you know, spend take some chances, spend on Alex Wood, spend on you know a couple of over thirty pitchers and Cobb and you know, and then oh, you get Yastrzemski in the waiver wire if you're really smart, <laughs> you know, and you luck out a couple of guys and you trade for 
Tyro Estrada, who's better than you thought. And so, like, oh, okay, Lamont Wade's good as a platoon guy. So, like, you piece together some places, some guys, and, you, and you're really smart about it, and you can you can kind of be competitive. And so maybe the guy um, whose name I'm forgetting, who's the number two to Zaidi in San Francisco, is a candidate for this job, because that would make a lot of sense, right? Um so I, I do agree they needed a change because I think Avila just was not making progress. And I think he also has a reputation of being not terribly analytical. So I think if you kind of bring in some kind of fresh, smart perspective from the outside, I think you'll, you'll see a transformation. They probably also need to look at their minor league development and say, okay, how can we get an edge? How can we sort of develop our pitchers better, develop our position players better? So they've got a lot of work to do, but if you just bring in somebody smart who can kind of overhaul that organization, I think that is your main priority, no matter how long it takes. Whatever you do, don't trade the next Isak Paredes for the next Austin Meadows. Because... Uh, I think that was the nail in the coffin. Yeah, yeah, that one didn't work out too well, did it? <laughs> no. Uh, before we wrap on the Tigers, I have a game, John. Let's play a game. It's called Guess the 2022 Tigers Team WRC+. Plus. Oh, boy. Without looking at fan graphs or anything. Yep. I don't know. 85? Wow, you're high. It's 77. No! (laughs) Because you got to figure there's like average guys, right? Are there? (laughs) Like Scope? Candelario? No? Scope has like a 60 WRC plus, I'm pretty sure, from this year. Hang on, let me... (laughs) We're going a little off the road here. Let me me pull this up. Let me... I want to see this now. Uh, Team, looking at Detroit. Uh, I got to take off the qualifiers... All right. Uh, sorting by WRC plus for Detroit, it's Dustin Garneau with a 123 WRC plus <laughs> in 11 plate appearances. Journeyman backup catcher. Oh, Harold Castro at 102 <laughs> in 335 plate appearances, so he's been right. okay, but okay. terrible defense, so yep. he's a replacement level player. Yep. <laughs> Austin Meadows at 101. Uh, he has zero homers this year, and I believe he's on the injured list and at negative 0.3 WAR. Yeah. And that's it for above average. Then you're down to Victor Reyes at 96, Riley Green at 95, but at least he has defensive value. Eric Haas, 92, Carrick Carpenter, 91, Willie Castro, 85. It's, you go scroll down a little bit. You got Miggy at 79, Robbie Grossman at 78, who they just traded, and now he's hitting well for the Braves because that's how the Braves work. Yeah. Bobby Baez, 78, Spencer Torkelson and Heimer Candelario, both at 69, Jonathan uh. Scope at 54, Tucker Barnhart at 49. My goodness. They traded for Tucker Barnhart. That was another yeah. deal on the coffin. Oh, yep. <laughs> so uh, not not good things happening in Detroit. Uh, what gonna, about what about my guy Akil Badu? Any hope uh, there? That's uh, it's at 44. <laughs> oh, <dear>. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. There's some rough things happening there. If you look, I had the page pulled up a, a second ago, but I got to go back to it. They have by far the fewest home runs in the league at 73. Only one other team is under 100, and that's Cleveland at 99. Uh, it's it's rough. the The Tigers are six points worth uh, six. Excuse me, six points worse in WRC plus than the lowly Oakland A's. Yeah, but hey, they drafted Peyton Graham and, and got <laughs> uh, Roberto Campos both in the Florida State League. And both two my guys. They're you know you got to wait four years a, for those guys. <laughs> yep, their low A team is fun. That's their redeeming quality. <laughs> yeah. All right, last team here. It's honestly a slightly similar story. In, in the in the way that they had success in like the early 2010s and haven't been able to get back to that. But the timing on this is a bit odd. Uh, the, the Rangers firing John Daniels. So did they expect, did ownership expect, and obviously they also fired Chris Woodward, their manager. 
Um, did ownership expect them to be good this year? Because I thought we were all pretty much in agreement that they were kind of intentionally jumping the gun by signing yeah. John Gray and Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager. Yeah. That that was kind of a, hey, we like these guys. They won't be on the market next year. Let's grab them now. We know it's a bit ahead of our competitive window, but we're just going to get them because they're here and they'll be on the team for a while. Like, I thought that was kind of the mindset. Was it actually that John Daniels said, hey, I want these guys. I'm going to convince Ray Davis. I believe he's their owner. Um, I'm going to convince him that we're going to build a winning team for this season. And that'll get him to sign off on Seager and Semyon. And we'll go from there. Is that what happened? Because I don't see what has changed between the offseason and now. Right? No. no one can. This was a big surprise. I mean, look, there may be things inside that we don't know. Um, what seems to be clear is that Ray Davis likes Chris Young and maybe is a little bit like infatuated with him thinking, oh, he's smarter than John Daniels. So why do we need John Daniels? Uh, Daniels has been there a few years. And sometimes when you're at a place for like 10, 15 years, you kind of settle in and maybe you're not as cutting edge with your thinking as you might have thought. Um, I know they brought in, you know, some analytics guys. Um, so maybe they thought, okay, we need to get a little bit smarter. I know it's been happening the last couple of years. Um, Chris Young tends to be that way as well. So maybe they just it's just all part of a sort of a process of kind of overhauling kind of or modernizing, let's say, you know, the front office. That's one theory. The other theory is he just got impatient. Um, I know there was a game a couple of weeks ago when the A's were in town and there was like, you know, two or three thousand people there. And this is a team that has built a new stadium with all these, you know, fun restaurants around it, kind of the whole fan experience, you know, and they really want butts in the seats. And so when there's no butts in the seats, you're like, well, what happened? And so maybe he overreacted to that sort of short term, sort of this team is bad playing another bad team. Oh, nobody's come to the game. Ah, and he freaked out. Those are my two theories. That's all I got. The other consideration that, I don't know where to place it. I don't really know what it means is that the Rangers have really like underperformed their expectations this year from a, from a Pythagorean, from like a run differential standpoint, they've done really poorly in, in one run games. They have a plus 17 run differential, but they're 58 and 67. So by I'm trying to find it right here, where, where, where is Pythagorean? Um, I'm, I'm struggling to find it, but I'm pretty sure they're more like a 500 ish team. Oh, here it is. Uh, Pythagorean Pat. Has them at 64 and 61 Pythag record, or 63 and 62 if you prefer base runs. And it's, I, I don't know if so, that wasn't communicated or wasn't believed by Ray Davis or something. That they're yeah. they're not a horrible baseball team. And I I thought if you trusted John Daniels enough to sign those guys and kind of point your team in the next direction and, and start the next foundation of the next good Rangers team. Like I said, what has changed between yeah. then and now? I mean, you know, I think they've done a pretty good job, you know, and it's very clear that they've been rebuilding for a while. So, like, in in that statement, I think, oh, we haven't had a winning record since 2016. Well, but you bought off on that. You knew you had to rebuild, and this was all part of the plan. And, in fact, your farm is generally considered pretty good. I mean, there's not, like, a superstar necessarily at the top of the list, but you've got several good young players coming. Josh Jung, Evan Carter, um jury style on Jack Leiter, but Owen White's kind of bubbled up. Um, Akin, uh, Ronald Acuna's little brother, Luis Angel's bubbled up. Um, you know, you've got some kind of, you've got enough guys in double digits now where you think you've got a future, you know, you know, at least a couple of regulars in there for your future team to kind of go along with the Seegers and Semyons. And so you've got a bright future. 
and it's all going according to plan. So what, you know, so that, that's why I'm curious. We must be missing something here. John Daniels, I would think, should be able to get another job because I think he's done a fine job with the rebuild. So there must be something we don't know. Yeah, it has to be because he – can you name any bad moves that the Rangers have made in recent years? They sold high on Joey Gallo, got a ton of prospects there. Corey Seager has been pretty great. Marcus Semien, slow start to the year, and yeah, maybe they overpaid for a career year there, but he's up to a 100 WRC yeah. plus, 2.6. He's usual getting second half thing. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Adolis Garcia was an excellent waiver wire pickup, or, or however it was they acquired him. He's I, I, yeah. he's pretty underrated. People don't give him enough credit for how talented he is. And Jonah they, Heim was yeah, excellent. Jonah Heim. Yeah. Like, and he's had this this revolving door of veteran pitchers who come in and get way better than they ever were the newest one is martin perez like yeah yep. i i can't see from an outsider's perspective what john daniels did wrong no i mean he sold high on, on lance lynn and mike minor and you know we kind of turned those around he knows how to create value i mean yeah i mean there's yeah it doesn't make any sense like alavila no <laughs> i can see that one like he's not doing a great job the rebuild kind of stalled and that one makes sense but this one doesn't make sense because he's doing just fine and so i'm sure the industry felt the same way again unless there's something we don't know um you know it doesn't make a whole lot of sense on paper the tigers should be blowing up john daniel's phone right uh, yeah sure yeah, I I can't see any reason not to bring him in, and I mean none of this uh, none of this should be perceived as anti Chris Young. I think for a few years now it's looked like he was ticketed for like a head of baseball ops job. Everyone in the industry seems to love him, and and he's he's got that blend that all these teams are looking for now. Of he's a genius, <laughs> I believe he was an Ivy leaguer, um, but also he has that former player perspective, and he can help communicate some of these higher level ideas to the players, to the the more traditional scouts, to the more just baseball ish people. Um, it's that kind of blended role that teams are looking at nowadays. Uh, Sam Fold is another one. And yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Jed Lowry ended up in a spot like that one of these days. Um, but so nothing against him at all. I think he's going to do a fine job and who knows, maybe, maybe a chunk of these successful moves that John Daniels has made have actually been, Chris Young's work or he's played a big role in them. And so not much is going to change, but I, yeah, I think we're just, we're just kind of talking in circles to the same. Yeah. I mean, we don't get it. The only other thing I can think of is sometimes it's a personality, you know, thing where like the boss and the guy reporting to the boss don't quite align personality wise or on the, not the same They don't communicate well with each other. Like sometimes it's just that, right? Like, and sometimes you're just like, Oh, I, I, I can communicate with this other guy really well, so I just want to hang out with him. And like sometimes it's just that. Yeah, uh, I think it's got to be something that we can't see, that we don't know about, that maybe it'll be reported one day, maybe it won't. But based on everything we can see, it doesn't make sense. I think that's kind of our conclusion here. Yeah. All right. Wow, we we kept it to a to about ninety minutes. Do you have anything else to add? No, I'm just I'm looking at the clock. It's one hour thirty minutes. That's a that's perfect i i didn't know we had it in us all we need is for there to be zero trades and we can keep it (laughs) zero trades and zero trade rumors and we can keep our trade podcast at 90 minutes (laughs) so i will i just sort of want to tee up um what's coming next so we do have i do have an article that i'm going to post in a couple days on the uh the ranking of the of the farm systems uh so look forward to that i know that there's been a lot of interest in that on twitter 
you know, and, you know, the more sort of, you know, traditional outlets have been posting theirs, uh, Baseball America, and I think I think Pipeline might have as well. At any, in any case, ours is a little bit different because it's based on trade value, and it's, it's a uh, cross-section of, you know, we're weighing different sources, right? And so it's not just one point of view. It's going to, like, a, be a weighted average of those. Uh, but it also takes into account, like, you know, positional adjustments, like second baseman not as valued as others might think on paper. It takes into account, like, you know, rule five and option status and things like that that will affect trade value. So you'll see a little bit different of, of a list. So I think you'll find it interesting. Yep, looking forward to that. And I know we've had a lot of questions about it. So hopefully those will uh, will be answered. Okay, I think that's all I have. That'll do it for this week. Thank all right. you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.